Forrest Castnavoid, when he came home, he's a Comanche code talker. When he come back home, <clears throat> he's on the train there at Lawton, Oklahoma, and family knew when he's coming in. So he starts to step down from the train, and his father steps up and stops him. And in Comanche, he says, what did you bring me? Ah, okay, you know. So he puts his duffel bag down. He pulled out a Nazi flag he took, give it to his dad. His dad kind of gives a hoop you know, war hoop kind of thing. He spreads that Nazi flag out on the sidewalk and says, now step down and dance in victory on this flag. So they brought a drum with them and they started singing right there beside the train at the train station, you know, and he stepped down and he danced on that flag that he brought home. That's how he was welcomed home, you know, initially. Welcome to a special bonus episode of Matizzi Stories, a podcast exploring the history of Matizzi through its people, places, and events. During this episode, you'll hear from Dr. Jeff Means, who was in the Indian Wars episode, and we'll also be joined by Dr. William Meadows, who you heard telling the story of the Code Talker returning from war. Matizzi sits in the Grable River drainage on traditional Shoshone and Crow lands. Today, the Wind River Reservation is just an hour's drive away. Matiti has been home to several Native American veterans, and the earliest of these with United States military veteran records were involved in World War I. Louis E. Allard of the Ojibwe served with the United States Army Company C 107th Ammunition Train 32nd Division. Frederick Bernard was in the infantry during World War I and was known around Matizzi for being the first on the dance floor and the last to leave with his wife Zula. In World War II, John Frost of the Crow Nation served in the U.S. Army, and Delbert Garthwaite of the Blackfoot Nation served as a first lieutenant in the Army Air Force. Marion Barnhart of the Sioux Nation served throughout World War II and continued his service into the Korean War. In this episode, we focus mostly on Native involvement in the United States military, which starts for Matizzi veterans in the 20th century. But as Dr. William Meadows will explain, that service is only a fraction of Native American involvement with the United States military. It basically goes back as uh, basically as far as you have uh, um, European and, and Native American interaction and everything. So uh, all through the colonial period, um, there have been Natives you know, allied or working with or against different uh, European colonists. Um, everything from um, then the uh, French and Indian War, of course, um, the American Revolution, uh, the War of 1812, and on forward into the modern days. So there, there's never been any uh, major conflict or, or military um development in the history of the United States that has not included um, a Native American component to it and everything. And, you know, in some cases like the Civil War, um, some Natives allied with the North and some were on the South, you know. And then uh, during the French and Indian War, of course, some Natives were uh, allied with France, some were allied with the British. And the French eventually lost out in that conflict. And then in the American Revolution, some natives are still with the British, some are with the Americans. You know, so so there's a 
you know, I think about almost any angle you can look at, it's covered. Unfortunately, because of broader societal stereotypes, Dr. Tom Holm, a member of the Creek and Cherokee Nations and professor at the University of Arizona, termed the phrase Indian Scout Syndrome. I'm pretty sure Tom Holm originated this this term in, in his book. So the Indian Scout Syndrome is a, um, it's a perception. It's kind of a, a, I wouldn't call it a stereotype. It's a genre of stereotypes that non-Indians typically hold about Indian people regarding military abilities and so this is that they're all like natural born warriors they you know they don't have to be trained it's biological which you know we know that uh you know all you have to do is look at an adoption and culture is a social element it's not biologically passed you know and we know that in anthropology and the, and the humanities um so it's the it's the assumption then that because they're indian they can see farther and better at night they can walk through the woods quieter. Um, you know, they're 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 natural scouts, they're natural fighters, uh, that kind of thing. Um, now, again, I think some of this some of this relates to: um, Are you dealing with people more raised in a rural setting who have done some of these types of of activities, uh, or are you dealing with people from an urban setting that haven't? Um, so. To me, a lot of this has been interesting. I'm I'm from a big, you know, a couple of big farms in in uh, in my home area. We used to go out on the farm for hours at night without a flashlight, and just use what lights available and navigate our knowledge of the land and and you know limited. But we could navigate fine everything. I don't think it's necessarily any specific ethnic group. I think it's a matter of whether you've done that and you're used to it, you know, kind of thing. But there was this perception. So the seriousness of it or the consequence is that most or a lot of Indians, not all Indians, but a lot of Indians were immediately assigned to be like point men for a patrol. Uh, 50, you know, 50, 60 yards out ahead of the group scouting. So they're going to be the first person to usually draw fire and make contact with the enemy. It puts them in a more dangerous position. Uh, or scouts to go out and do scout and reconnaissance type activity and then come back. Again, it's enhancing the frequency and the likelihood of, of increased contact with the enemy, which means you have a better chance of getting wounded, killed, or, you know, or, or injured or something of that nature. Um, and so that's still, there's an element of that that still persists to this day, you know, is, uh, and so it kind of goes along to where Indians are usually referred to collectively as chief. Um, and, and, you know, I've had natives from some tribes tell me that like, you know, I explained to the officer, we don't have the concept of a chief in our social organization that's okay you're chief anyway you know <laughs> so um but almost all indians in um uh, uh you know in world war ii world war one were called chief um two guys in vietnam in the same unit they told me one of them was physically bigger so one was one was big chief and the other one was little chief <laughs> And uh, they're like, okay, whatever, we, we can handle that, you know. And, um, so that's another thing where uh, most of the time, most people 
they they say we're really offended about it. We're just like, okay, you know, it's not. They don't see it as a derogatory thing. It's just a kind of a stereotype, and and um, that uh, non-Indians have about Indians and everything. So a lot of them, it's like you know, somebody say, "Chief, we need you." And yeah, I go, you know, and they didn't think nothing about it because everybody had nicknames. Uh, uh, didn't matter what your ethnicity was, you'd get a nickname. The nicknames lasted far beyond just Vietnam. Dr. Jeff Means is not just a professor of history at the University of Wyoming. He's also a veteran and was kind enough to share his military experience with us. Hi, this is Jeff Means. Uh, I got out of the Marine Corps as a corporal in 1991. Currently, I'm a history professor at the University of Wyoming, and uh, I'm an enrolled member of the Oglala Sioux Tribe. What's, well, what's interesting with me is because uh, my mom is about as Irish as they come, I don't uh, look necessarily Native American. I look a lot like my dad, but I have fairer skin and so on. So I passed for white my entire life, even though I've always identified as um, Native American. And uh, so I didn't specifically see a whole lot of different treatment, but I had friends who were Native American and they were um, you know, they appeared very Native American, and they definitely uh, had uh, more of a unique experience. They had nickname, you know, like Chief. Uh, Chief was <laughs> the nicknames for for, for uh, Native Americans, that kind of thing. So, um, but still, even even then, um, we had a pretty tight group, and I didn't see anybody uh, racially discriminated against when I was in the Corps. Outside of the nickname Chief, Indian Scout Syndrome can have disastrous results. But again, the, the importance of that is that it, it puts you statistically in higher, more dangerous positions usually. You can look, particularly you look at World War One, and um, I can't remember the percent, but it's, it's like, it's, I think it's almost five times higher. Um, the percentage of native killed in action to non-natives killed in action, you know, kind of thing. And, you know, the natives were a, a relatively small group in World War One. I. I mean, you know, there's a there's a few million people over there and you had uh, oh, probably around 12,000 Native Americans, but still drawing that higher percentage five times. So uh, and. There, there's an interesting dialogue here that um, has been discussed in the literature is, is that uh, uh, most natives, if they're asked to do a task, would not turn it down or, or refuse it or try to get out of it. You know, you want me to go scout? Okay, I'll do it. You know, they just do it. Um, so on one hand, there is this non-Indian tendency to use them more often for these dangerous positions but there's also a native tendency to not only accept that when asked to do it but also many natives volunteered to do it and so that does contribute then to those higher numbers and so you get to the question of why are they volunteering well some of this probably goes back to again the importance of a a warrior in their society and you know the uh um not showing, you know, not showing fear or doing your part, et cetera, and everything of that nature. So you took on dangerous uh, tasks and everything, you know. Keep in mind, the terms such as indigenous and Native American group them together. There are 574 federally recognized Native nations within the United States. 
the cultural practices of the nations do in some instances have commonalities, but there are also differences. You know, like like the Hopis, I've done a little bit of work with the Hopis and, and some of their veterans. The Hopis do not celebrate traditionally warriors. They don't celebrate warfare. And so uh, they have ceremonies, you know, they don't, they're not into all the big parades and those kind of things. Now, Plains Indians, on the other hand, they love that stuff. It's, it's, it's very public, vocal, visual, et cetera. You know. So, yes, it, it does depend a lot on the groups. Uh, I would say for the most part that the continuation of military service in the modern form, again, it's just my opinion, um, I would say that it has helped keep a lot of Native American culture alive. Because what it has done, if you're, I know you're an anthropologist, uh, if you know the, the word syncretism, so you're taking things from two previously separate sources and then they're being blended into a new form. So, again, um, my thesis, part of my dissertation was on the Kiowa Blackleg in society. Um, they have their traditional, you know, dress, leggings, moccasins, you know, cape, different things. They carry lances, weapons in their war society. They have all their military service ribbons, their division patches, all that stuff is right there mixed in with it. Um, some of the men have their, their lances. Uh, some of the men I interviewed, the decorations are all different on the lances. So I've asked some of them, you know, can you tell me what, this why is your lance decorated the way it is so one gentleman for example had made 20 his he said i had 21 eagle feathers down this um i made 21 bombing missions in world war ii in europe so it was one for every mission there's another family where uh they have a lance and the big feathers down the lance are for the campaigns and battles that this soldier was in the small feathers at the top, and there's a cluster of them to hang down. The small feathers at the top are for people he killed personally and everything. So um, there's some people that have painted. Um, the Kiowas had a tradition back in the old days that uh, the men would, t the women wore these high top boot like moccasins. Uh, when you see a woman's moccasin like that, big boot, and it has stripes painted across the back of the calf, those were coup marks of their husband, typically. So there's a few families that still do that. So I know one family where uh, this individual was a, a Marine for 27 years, retired as a captain. Um, so his wife, her dress is basically a representation of his military service to honor him. So the beadwork around the yoke and everything are in the design of his service ribbons and his awards. So it looks different than any other beadwork, you know, you typically see. Um, I think it has a bronze star on it for one part, but on the back of her leggings, one of them has 14 stripes, one has 13 stripes, and he painted them. The, the man has to paint the stripes because he earned them, but it's painted on the women's leggings you know um but th that's a good example that's exactly what they did pre-reservation you know th with those stripes um so there's a lot of things i think where uh they still have scalp and victory dances the groups that i work with um so they would have brought back a shield from another tribe uh, moccasins, uh, a saber from the cavalry, a flag, whatever they captured. That's still done today. I, I see 
Japanese sabers, um, bayonets from Vietnam, German helmets, uh, these types of things, Iraqi flag, these types of things are still brought out into that arena from time to time, and the women dance with them during the scalp and victory dances. So I think military service has been a, a uh, again, for certain tribes, it's been a huge arena that has allowed them to take those old traditions and just carry them forward again syncretized a little bit with with the modern stuff you know but the basics are still there the songs are there the dances are there um the symbolism what it stands for um it's just that the nature of the service is a little different today so i heard a an older woman one time make the remark um and i'm paraphrasing from memory but it was something about um you know, the, the technology has changed, the style of warfare has changed, but nothing replaces bravery and courage. And so that that's what the elders saw, uh, particularly they described the ones that, you know, saw World War II and World War One. They said, you know, yeah, you're not on horseback now, and maybe you're a machine gunner, maybe you're a rifleman, uh, maybe you're artillery. We didn't have artillery back then. It doesn't matter. It's, it's still you are defending your people and your land. It's just new new tools, you know, everything. So that that they have they have so gracefully uh, blended modern military service with their value system, cultures, uh, practices. It's beautiful. To me, it's a beautiful thing. Dr. Meadows' argument that military service has helped maintain cultural practices in Native nations is echoed by Dr. Meads. After the turn of the 20th century, when reservation life was solidified and uh, Native Americans found themselves confined to these uh, generally economically disadvantaged areas, uh, economically, politically, socially, the military provided not only an economic opportunity, but also a, a spiritual opportunity, a, um, and an, the ability to restore some of that uh, pride in being a Native American and being a soldier uh, or a Marine uh, that had disappeared during reservation life um, and and that access to the masculine self had kind of disappeared and um, it was quite psychologically damaging. So, you know, the ability to join join the United States military uh, became a wonderful outlet for uh, Native Americans and we have joined traditionally in large numbers. Those historically large numbers include over 150,000 American Indian and Alaska Native veterans, identified on the 2010 census. 27 Native Americans have been awarded the Medal of Honor, which is the nation's highest military honor. Statistically, American Indians and Alaska Natives serve at five times the national average, with a higher concentration of women in service than other groups. What about the history of Native American women in in military service? Okay. Uh, Again, it's something that's always been there. There's not as much documentation on it. It's always been there, um, even even pre-reservation. There are instances of what they call warrior women. 
or sometimes out on the on the plains they call them strong-hearted women, uh, but women who took on men's roles and you know so kind of a, a gender a gender uh, a choice um, gender role choice really, and so there are cases of women that accompanied war parties sometimes fought. Um, there's a famous. Uh, Crow woman that rode in the battle and rescued her brother and, and, you know, attacked the enemy and things. The woman who rescued her brother in battle is known as Buffalo Calf Road Woman or Calf Trail Woman. If you listen to the Indian Wars episode, you'll remember the conversation on the Battle of the Little Bighorn. A week prior to that, on June 17th, 1876, there was a battle known as the Battle of the Rosebud. It was at that battle that Buffalo Calf Road Woman saved her brother, whose horse had been struck down. She was also involved the week following at the Battle of the Little Bighorn. When Custer's men attacked the Cheyenne and Lakota for both battles, they were with their families. The majority of the women and children retreated to safety, with the exception of Buffalo Calf Road Woman. According to one of the women who retreated, Calf Trail Woman had a six-shooter with bullets and powder, and she fired many shots at the soldiers. She was the only woman there who had a gun. She stayed on her pony all the time, but she kept not far from her husband, Black Coyote. At one time, she was about to give her pony to a young Cheyenne who had lost his own, but I called out to them, Our women have plenty of good horses for you down at the river. She took the young Cheyenne up behind her on her own pony, and they rode away toward the river. This same woman was also with the warriors when they went from the Reno Creek camp to fight the soldiers far up Rosebud Creek about a week before. She was the only woman I know of who went with the warriors to that fight. Each January since 1999, Cheyenne runners have run from Fort Robinson, Nebraska to Northern Cheyenne Reservation. The 400-mile run is in honor of their ancestors who, like Buffalo Calf Road Woman, fought for their sovereignty. For more information on Buffalo Calf Road Woman, check the show notes. We have a bunch of links there. Um, of course, in later wars, um, we don't allow women in combat positions per se. There's always the chance that you know, you're in the zone, you may receive some showing or something. Um, but there are, uh, I think, around 800 Native women that served in World War II. And uh, uh, in the WACs, the WAVES, the different organizations and things of that nature. Um, same way, uh, you know, I can't think of a war where there isn't or there aren't uh, Native women that serve Korea, Vietnam, so forth and so on. Now, of course, more recently, um, the participation of women I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I am absolutely sure it is increasing. Uh, I am just seeing so many Native women uh, from Iraq, Afghanistan, and, you know, the last, well, since Desert Storm, particularly, and everything. Um, I'm seeing more and more of them coming back and being recognized and being honored and everything of that nature. Um, And, of course, uh, the range of roles that women can now participate in is broadening in the military a lot so that means a lot more you know ranges um i know a lieutenant colonel that just retired a few years back that's a native native officer and that's something that you wouldn't have seen you know earlier earlier back in time Uh, now one one evolution of this that i've seen uh there are several groups now across the country of native women veterans who come back 
and they have formed their own uh, color guard or honor guard to bring in as veterans to bring in the flags at powwows and, and different cultural events like that. And there's a real classic case. Um, I don't have the name on the tip of my tongue. Uh, it, it may be something like Native American warrior women, but uh, they were they were in line uh, for a powwow and some of the other men veterans said, why aren't you up here with the veterans? You belong there. You guys are veterans too. And so eventually they asked them, why don't you guys bring the flags in? And so they formed, and it's beautiful. They have matching, matching uh, ribbon work dresses and regalia and everything. Um, And then each has their, their distinct ribbon, service ribbons, uh, rank, all that on their regalia. Um, but they do a stellar job, and there's several of them now uh, popped up. I'm seeing them uh, across the country now. Um, so that, that I think, is a positive thing. It's a much more uh, visible role that's honoring Native women for their service, and, and that's a good thing. You know, that, that's something that has been um, looked over a lot in the past, you know. But what about the inescapable fact that Native peoples throughout the United States are still colonized, and that just a couple generations ago, the U.S. military was actively trying to put Native people on reservations with the idea of wiping out their culture? Are there any ethical dilemmas stemming from this history? Um, I, I, overall, I would say no. I would say no. Now, you will get, and this is why I tell my classes, um, I've worked in China, I've worked in Japan, I've worked with, I don't know, many, many Native communities and things. I've been around people from other parts of the world, other countries, but I said, uh, you will always get a few personality types that will try to guilt you, argue with you, whatever, just stir the pot. Identifying as a Native American and knowing like the history of Euro-Americans and Native Americans, was that something that you like mentally dealt with at all or did you just not think about it? Um, At the time, uh, this was before I went to college and I really didn't think about it. Um, It wasn't until, you know, you start learning uh, the history and understanding uh, the process of settler colonialism and um, how you know, the native voice has been muted and everything that you really start to deal with it on an intellectual or even a conscious level. Um, so, uh, no, I, when I joined the Marine Corps, I was just joining the Marine Corps and, you know, just uh, facing it very much as an individual. Is it something you think about now or have, have thought about? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I've, as a, <laughs> a professor of Native American history here, uh, at Wyoming, I uh, deal with this quite often, uh, you know, as I teach my courses, because I, I really try and be balanced. I think my students would um, say that I do a really good job of, of not trying to uh, preach white guilt or anything like that. But I think you really have to understand um, the perspective of all parties involved. And so when I, you know, dealt with this um, on a personal level, I was still proud of being a, a Marine, still very much a Marine, uh, and so on. But I, I then understood the um, larger uh, cultural implications and, and consequences of that, uh, which are manyfold, really, for each individual. Almost, almost across the board, um, you know, per capita, 
um, veterans are very well respected and thought of. And, and I, I would honestly say this, I would say more so in some communities and more frequently than they are in non-Indian communities. Now, non-Indian communities respect their veterans, guarantee that, but um, Native veterans I've talked to said, we never, they come home with, with guilt about Vietnam because of the way the public reacted here, the country and, and everything. But they said, we didn't get that in Indian communities. That was from the mainstream. Mm. Uh, when you came home to the Indian communities, they don't care if you were a, a, a stenographer and a clerk or a cook or a frontline combat guy. You were a veteran. You were honorably discharged. It didn't matter whether you volunteered or you drafted. You did your duty. You protected your land, your people, and the United States. We honor you. No question. No politics. No politics. And, and that's something very different because uh, – I have talked to both Indian veterans and non-Indian veterans that have been spit on or that have seen other fellow veterans get spit on and things of that nature. Um, but I've never heard – now, I, I, I can't say it never happened, but I've never heard of a case or a frequency of that in Native communities. You know, And so uh, one of the reasons I say I think more frequently recognized is that – you might be at a powwow, just uh, it's not Veterans Day, it's not Memorial Day or anything, but frequently at a powwow or a gathering, and they'll say, uh, anyone who's a veteran here, stand up now, you know, and they're going to take a moment and recognize them. And the event has nothing to do with veterans per se, you know. And so that kind of thing is frequent in a lot of Native communities, whereas in non-Native communities, unless somebody's coming home, um, you know, it's usually just a little bit at Memorial Day, a little bit at Veterans Day. Uh, and then if there's a if there's like a 70th anniversary or something, a special anniversary, you know, but most of the year, you don't really hear a whole lot about, you know, things of that nature. And uh, um, I remember where um, this thing, people come up to veterans now and they say, thank you for your service, you yeah. know. And I don't remember the year that started, but I, I remember when it started and I thought that's a good thing. But at the same time, I thought, boy, that's an odd thing because why haven't they been doing that all along? You know, I, I never heard that for Vietnam veterans or, or people through the 80s or even even most of the 90s and things. So that's a more recent trend, you know, that is that has come up and everything, you know, uh, but. Uh, Native societies, like I say, every time a veteran goes off, they will usually have some kind of a function for them. One of the women's veterans organizations, service clubs, or a society, or their family, somebody will put something on for them, you know. And then when they come back, a lot of times they'll have something, <clears throat> some event to, uh, you know, to do things. Roland Whitehorse is a Kiowa, or was Kiowa. Uh, he's passed on now. He was in the Ninth Division was in Europe, and when he came back, uh, the family had a powwow for him. And it, it's it's the family; it's my host family there, the same place where I where I stay. <clears throat> they had a, a dance for him, and around the drum, the women took blankets out and spread them in a circle that connected all the way around the drum. Uh, they had composed a song for him. And he belonged to the uh, Ohoma Society. So they composed his, his own personal war dance song for him and sung it there. And it, ha it has his Kiowa name in the song. And they had him dance um, 
you know, to celebrate him coming home, dance around that drum on those blankets. And then all those blankets were given away as, you know, giveaway and everything like that. Um, those I think are really unique experiences, you know, now neither one of them is, is wrong. I mean, you know, it's just that cultures have different ways of celebrating and doing things. Um, Non-Indians, it's more about speeches and maybe a ticker tape parade and something at the airport or, and then you go home, you know, and with natives, it's, it's, it's more, you know, it's, it's more tightly community and uh, some of the organizations they belong to. So I thought I would just share some of those examples uh, with you, you know, like say neither one are 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 bad or anything they're just different ways of honoring veterans but some of these are just so special and um again i i i feel uh blessed to have that shared with me those kind of things you know it's sounding like um it's more integrated into native identity and interaction versus in non-native society it's just kind of they're a veteran but it's move on and that's and that's exactly part of what i think tom holm is getting at um is that if you have those very supportive social circles those are the kind of things that immediately make you feel welcomed appreciated uh and we're here for you we you know we want you out here doing things with us, not going and sitting off by yourself uh, or getting depressed or things. And so I think the people that have those things, and and there are situations in non-Indian society where, where an individual may have those kind of things in their own culture. But if you have that kind of immediate um, reintegration and that strong kin support work, you have a better chance of recovering from PTSD. If you listened to the Civil War episode, you'll remember Doc Kurt Hackmer finding communities of Civil War veterans in South Dakota. The veterans within these communities overrepresented the 300 fighting regiments of the Civil War and were wounded at a rate twice as high as the Union Army. A link to PTSD and long-term healing within these communities couldn't be established because of a lack of both personal accounts of the veterans themselves and medical records. But this is a case of mutual aid between veterans. Now, there's no guarantees, you know. Um, it depends on, again, a lot of it has to do with the individual and what they experience and things. And um, a couple of the Navajo Code Talkers, you know, they have enemy way. And so it, it's a very long uh, it's about a three to four day ride to cleanse you of contact with foreigners and the dead and, and enemy and all that kind of thing. And it's a very, it's a beautiful ceremony. It's very elaborate. Um, and one guy took me out, he explained the stages to me, but took me out and showed me the spot where he had his done. Um, some guys went through that one time and that was it. No more bad dreams. And, and part of the ceremony is that they tell the medicine man, everything they went through good and bad and get it all out it's very cathartic you know and then they're told you don't talk about those things anymore and so for some people there's a, a spiritual reason not to not to divulge this stuff again you know um so that those kind of things again but for some individuals uh and we have many cases but they might go 10 15 20 years they're fine but then it starts coming back again. And so they'll have another enemy way ceremony for them. And I think you can have up to 
it's it might be four. I'm not sure if it's three or four, but you can have up to three or four of that ceremony done over a period of years. So I know a guy that had three of them over 38 years after World War II, you know, um, kind of thing. But people do talk about for for most individuals yes it helps them and it, it things but i knew um i knew a couple individuals uh, still in their 90s um he said almost every night it comes to me the the same dream and he's being you know pursued by these three japanese men and he knows their faces and everything you know and he just can't you know can't get away from it and so he has still occasionally nightmares and things but he kind of um he seemed to kind of like it wasn't overwhelming him he dealt with it he knew it was there it was going to happen but he dealt with it it wasn't it wasn't to where it made him unable to work hold a job socialize or anything of that nature you know and uh, so again people have very you know, very, very different experiences and things, you know. Is there any literature or oral histories about PTSD, um, like pre-reservation and how that was dealt with or no? I don't know of any. Um, and this is, this is an interesting topic. I've, I've talked with other Indian veterans and I've asked them that question. They're like, I've never heard of anything like that. And that makes me, um, you know, that makes me raise the question, and I, you know, I'm not really sure how to answer it yet, um, but is it possible that that just didn't exist or not anywhere near the degree or anything of that nature? Because, you know, like I say, in, the, in that time, um, a lot, particularly the Plains groups, you know, that was your being a warrior, so whether it was fighting the enemy, capturing horses, et cetera, uh, that was one of your main ways of, of how you establish your social status and your rank and your position and everything. And so it was very much, uh, I mean, you, you listen to the songs and, and, and the accounts and things. I mean, there's a lot of guys that wanted to go to war. They, you know, they were organized a war party to lead it, to go out, you know, against this group or something. So um, I don't want to, I don't want to glamorize it. You know, I don't want to stereotype it, but um, it seemed like it was, it was just more a part of, of the range of normal life experiences that inevitably you would experience a certain amount of this. And then, like I say, you come back, a lot of veterans, to name a child, you told a war deed, you, you, re, you recited a war deed, and then you bestowed a name on that child and everything. Because a lot of times the, the names were based off of your personal war deeds that you were bestowing on somebody, you know. Um, but there is, I mean, again, not to, not to sugarcoat it, but there is a celebration of it in, in a lot of traditional societies. Now, not so much in like the Pueblo and societies and, and some of those groups and everything. Um, the majority of their, if you look at their conflict traditionally, the majority of it is defensive. It's when, when they were attacked. But there are cases, though, of, of, of uh, retribution when they're attacked or people were stolen or taken captive. They went after them. And, yes, they, you know, th there are plenty of accounts of that. Uh, but the, plain, the Plains uh, culture and economy, you know, particularly, and I would say to some degree, even the eastern woodlands, the southeastern woodlands, you know, they actively – you know, actively periodically engaged in warfare on, on other enemies and, and uh, um, had a lot of ceremonies and status and things like that. Links to Dr. William Meadows' book and some of the literature mentioned are in the show notes. 
Special thanks to Dr. Meadows and Dr. Means for joining us for this special bonus episode. And of course, to Kathleen Holzer for her wonderful research on Matitsi veterans. Again, Matitsi's Native American veterans include Louis Allard, Frederick Bernard, John Frost, Delbert Garthwaite, and Marion Barnhart. Be sure to share the podcast, rate and review it, and let us know how we're doing. Thanks for joining us. This is Matitsi Stories, a podcast by the Matitsi Museums.